Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. So we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together, as you know. And today we're in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to try to make it from verse 47 to 52. So kind of get your eyes on that and know where we're going. Before we read this passage... Somebody in the back, maybe give me a thumbs up, make sure everyone can hear me. Can you hear me? Okay. Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good in the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, come out and separate the evil from the righteous, the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe that has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Oh, how we love your law. It's our meditation all the day. And Lord, we, we want to pray to you even what we just sang to you, Lord. Speak to us. God, speak to us through your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, you teach us in your word that when your truth goes out, there's a lot at stake. That there's spiritual warfare and there's lies and deception and distraction. That for many, Lord, eternity is at stake. And I just pray, God, that you would allow that sort of soberness to come over us as we think about these truths this morning what a glorious thing God to get to read your word together thank you God thank you thank you help us to understand it help us to worship worship you and help us to be doers of your word thank you Lord for hearing us this morning in Jesus name amen all right, so we've been in this uh, section in Matthew 13 where Jesus is teaching in parables. And we see him teaching the crowds in parables. And we see him going sort of behind the scenes 
and teaching his disciples in parables. And really we have the final two parables. We have the final two parables here. We've got the parable of the net. That's verse 47 through 50, where we just read. And that's another parable about the kingdom of heaven. He says it just like he keeps saying it, right? And uh, again, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like, that's what he keeps saying. The kingdom of heaven is like. So, so it's another parable about the kingdom of heaven. But then our second parable, we'll call it the parable of the homeowner or the master of the house. The parable of the homeowner. That's verse 50 and 51. And it's really a parable about disciples. What a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like. And we see that because Jesus says, do you understand these things? They say yes. And then he says, therefore, every scribe that's been trained, or that word is made a disciple. Every scribe that's been made a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like. And it gives a little parable or, or if you'd rather use the word a simile. Um, it says this is what a disciple in the kingdom is like. So our first parable answers the question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? And then the second parable answers the question, what is a disciple in the kingdom of heaven like? So let's start with the parable of the net. So the parable of the net, like I said, is verse 47 through 50. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel about a preacher or a teacher that emphasized hell more than love? What would you think about a preacher that emphasized hell more than love? And be careful how you answer that because Jesus is this kind of teacher. That he has this repetitive going back to weeping and gnashing of teeth and judgment and hell over and over again. Now this doesn't mean he's not loving. In fact, the very fact that he's willing to say those things is because of his love. But I think it's good for us to just to realize that, that Jesus in perfect love, he does not ignore and he does not neglect the topic of judgment and hell. Now, the reason I bring that up is because this parable, the parable of the net, is a parable about the judgment of the wicked. It's a parable about hell. And that's really clear if, if you look at verse 47 through 50. The first two verses, verse 47 and 48, is the parable. And it's easy to understand, right? Fishermen are fishing. They throw out this massive net. A bunch of fish are gathered up in the net. A bunch of, a bunch of uh, these fish, good and bad. And then they're gathered up on the shore and they sit down and they begin to sort out. Good fish go over here, throw the bad fish away. The parable is not hard to understand. And then the explanation is in verse 49 and 50. And the explanation is, is, listen, this is what it'll be like at the end of the age. Don't you know that? At the end of the age, it's going to be like this. The angels are going to sort out the good fish from the bad fish, the evil from the righteous. And it goes on to say that the evil will be cast into a fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is the focus of the parable of the net? The judgment of the wicked. The focus is on eternal punishment in hell. Now that explanation, if, if you 
you know, again, glance down to verse 49 and 50. Did that sound familiar to you? They'll be cast into the fiery furnace. In this place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because Jesus just said something like this in verse 41 and 42. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the explanation also shows us that that parable is a focus on the judgment of the wicked, on hell. So this is a repetition. He's saying this again. And so one question that might come in your mind is why? Why Why such a repetition here? And specifically, why repetition on this topic of judgment and hell? Why? And one reason would be for emphasis, right? Like, this is really important. We need to know this. We need to understand this. Another reason has something to do with ourselves. We are a forgetful people. And I don't just mean that we're intellectually forgetful. I mean, we are a spiritually forgetful people. It's not that we just forget the facts. We forget the weight of the facts. And don't you know that, that if you just felt the weight of the of the realities being pulled out here there's a judgment coming for the wicked hell is coming if you felt the weight of that how would that affect your life and yet we can be so spiritually forgetful and so jesus repeats he he repeats himself here about judgment and hell and so i don't feel any any reserve and repeat myself as well I want to take a few phrases from this parable, the parable of the net, and let's just take a phrase and meditate on it. And take another phrase and meditate on it. Five phrases out of this passage, okay? Number one, verse 49 says, the end of the age. Please lean in and consider this little peek into eternity. It says, verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. We live in an age that's going to come to an end. This age is going to give way to the next age. We live in an age that's going to come to an end. It's important that we know this. So many people are living their life as if this is the only age and there is no age to come. It's really, really important that we think about that. Our time is coming to an end. This age is an age of mercy. It's a gospel age. In this age, the wicked are allowed to uh, uh, swim around freely with the righteous. And they're given mercy. In this age, the wicked are given a chance to turn away from their sin and bow to King Jesus and find mercy and grace. But the end of the age is coming. And at the end of the age, it'll be too late. Mercy will be no more. So it will be At the end of the age. Second phrase. You see it right here in verse 49. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous. And I want to focus on that. You've got the two categories. The evil and the righteous. Now every human on the planet fits into one of these two categories. You you are either in the category of the evil or you are in the category of the righteous. Now, how does one get into the category of evil? How do you get there? Sin, right? Sin is how you get there. Sin is how you get 
into the category of evil. And I want you to get a feel for how deep, deep this problem is. We're in this category of evil. How do we know? We sin against God. We actively sin against God. But listen, it's deeper than that. Because it's not just that you sin against God, but that it's this, that you were actually born into sin. You were born in iniquity. Psalm 51 verse 5 says this, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, my mother conceived me. Ephesians 2 says we are by nature children of wrath. This is by nature that you're a child of wrath. You see, the the problem is deeper than just you sin, but that you are a sinner by birth. You're not in the evil category because you sin. You sin because you were born into the evil category. And listen, the problem goes even deeper than that. Not only born into sin, but Adam's wickedness, that first man who was created, Romans 5 says, is our representative head, that what happens to him happens to us. His sin has been imputed to us, meaning his sin has been laid upon our account. Romans 5.12 says that. Just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin, meaning all sin in Adam. Do you see how deep this sin problem is? Not just that you've rebelled, but you're born a sinner and Adam's sin has been imputed to you. And the deeper, the deeper you realize that sin problem, the more you realize how great of a savior you need. The deeper you realize is this sin problem, the greater the Savior you realize that you need. So which category are you in? Are you in the evil category or are you in the righteous category? Now, the righteous. How does one move from the evil category? Adam sin imputed, born into wickedness. You've rebelled against God, sinned against him. How does one move from evil category to the righteous category? category it's not by your own doing job 14 verse 4 who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean there's no one who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean there's no one you cannot make yourself righteous all your best righteousness is like filthy rags in his sight says the prophet isaiah You can't make yourself righteous, but just just as Adam's sinfulness was imputed to us, it was placed on our account, even so, we need the perfect righteousness of another to be imputed to us. We need the perfect righteousness of some other one to be laid upon our account. We need that. We need another representative head because Adam... He was our head, and his sins imputed to us. We need another Adam, a better Adam, one who's perfectly righteous, and his righteousness could be imputed to us. In steps Jesus, 
Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God incarnate. He takes on flesh so that he could die for sinners. He lives a perfectly righteous life. He wasn't born into sin. He's born of the Virgin, born of the Holy Spirit, not born into sin like me and you. Perfectly righteous life he lives. He dies in the place of sinners, rises from the dead, and if you will repent of your sin and put your faith in him, his righteousness is put on your account. It's imputed to you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So you got the evil category and you've got the righteous. And then those that put their faith in Christ and are declared righteous, they're justified. God gives them a new heart. He regenerates them, a new heart, a new spirit, and they begin to live righteously. Therefore, you are are, uh, in the category of righteousness because his righteousness is imputed to you. And you have a new heart, a new soul, and he's making you begin to live in a righteous way. So through repentance and faith in Jesus, we can move from the evil category to the righteous category. Which category are you in? Number three, third phrase, is in verse 50. Look at verse 50. You see these three words? It says the fiery furnace. The fiery furnace. What is, what's the end? What is the end for all of those who, who remain in the evil category, who, who are without Christ, what's the end for them? This verse says, the fiery furnace. The horrific pain, imagine it, of being thrown into a skin-melting fire is meant to illustrate something for us of the horrific pain and agony and torment of hell. The fiery furnace. I want you to listen to some other scriptures. This is in the gospel of Matthew. And this happens again and again and again. Where in the gospel of Matthew we see reference to hell. To this fiery furnace. Matthew 3 verse 12 says. The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Hell is a kind of fire that will not be quenched. Ever. Chapter 5, verse 22, it calls hell the hell of fire. Chapter 7, verse 19 says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 18.8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. It's eternal. It's a pain and agony and torment that never ends. It's eternal fire, it says here. And it would be more pleasurable for you to have your foot cut off or your eye gouged out than to enter into this place of torment. Chapter 25, verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire. And the only company you have there is the devil and his angels. As they're being tormented as well. Hell is a horrible place. It's a horrible place. Number five. Excuse me. Number four. Again, we're still in verse 50. Look at it. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of weeping, of never-ending sorrow, eternal depression. All joy is sucked from that place forever. And then it says gnashing of teeth. This Gnashing of teeth, this pain, this never-ending pain and agony causes you to gnash your teeth at God. And it never ends. Last phrase, number five. It's in verse 49, you see it? The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. The angels, the angels are going to throw people there. Cast them into the fiery furnace. Angels are going to throw them. No one's going to walk willingly into hell. They must be thrown there by the angels. Men flippantly say things like, I can't wait to get to hell. That'll be fun. That's not true. They are deceived. There's going to be a moment when Christ returns where there's this awakening of the reality of hell. We see it in Revelation 1. It says when the Son of Man comes, the nations are going to mourn. You know why they're mourning? They realize in that moment that that eternal torment they had ignored or rejected, it's true. And they know they're about to go there. No one walks in willingly. They're going to claw. They're going to try to claw their way out. They're going to try to hide themselves. This might be the very first time some people ever pray when they say, oh God, please hide me from the wrath of the Lamb. But it'll be too late to pray. And they'll be tossed by the angels into this place. And Jesus loves us enough to tell us about this place. And not only tell us about this place, but tell us about this place repetitively. And not only repetitively, but even in these parables to hit this once and then twice. Wake up to it. Don't be asleep to it. Now, men and women who have been humbled... They believe these facts about hell. And they don't just believe the facts, but they feel the weight of it. They know that they deserve to go to that place. That if they're given what they deserve, they, this is exactly where they'll be in hell forever. Men and women that are humbled like that, they are ready. Their hearts are ready to receive the grace of Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross and forgiveness is offered to them. They're ready for that. There's a poem by a guy named Ralph Erskine, he's a Scottish pastor in the 1700s, and he says it in a, in a fun way. He says it like this. Most qualified they are in heaven to dwell who see themselves most qualified for hell. Most qualified are they in heaven to dwell 
who see themselves most qualified for hell. But not every man or woman is humbled in this way. Many are rebellious, and in, in their rebellion, they buck against the doctrine of hell. Either I'm, I'm going to reject it, or I'm going to ignore it, but they buck against this truth that a judgment day is coming, the evil will be sorted out from the righteous, and the fiery furnace is where they go. They just, just keep it out of their mind. And one of the greatest deceptions on planet Earth, think about it, is this. No one thinks they're going to this place. No one ever thinks they're going to this place of hell. Now, everybody thinks they're fine. It's going to be okay. Nobody thinks they're going here, and that is a deception. They're like a fish caught in a net, and they don't know it. They don't know it, and the net is just slowly closing in on them. Listen to me today, please. If you need to be awakened to this, to a judgment coming, a judgment for, a, the, for the wicked and eternal torment hell. If you need to be awakened to this, let this parable awaken you. Don't harden your heart. Don't ignore this. When you think about the parable itself, the Greek word for net right there, it actually tells us something about the kind of fishing they're talking about. You see, at this time, they, they had the kind of fishing similar to what we often think of fishing of dropping a hook Dropping a line, dropping a hook down, trying to catch one fish. They had that. They also had this thing where uh, one man could have a net and he could toss that net out into the sea and try to gather up some fish in that way. But that's not what this is talking about. This Greek word for net here, this is a massive net. Um, the picture that should be in your head is a massive net. And the way they would do this is somehow they would anchor it to the shore, one side of the net, the other side anchored to the boat, and literally this boat would go out into the sea, stretching out this massive net in sort of a, a circular fashion all the way around. The net would have uh, floats on the top and weights on the bottom, and he would come all the way back around to that point on the shore where he started. What did that create? This massive net wall. And they would just drag that net in little by little. Until so all that's caught, all the fish in that net are caught. And then they got to sort it out. I want, the, I want this parable to wake you up. If you're here today, listen to me. And you felt some sort of pricking or conviction of sin. You're going to be tempted to ignore that. And here's what you're like. You're like a fish caught in this wall of a net. And all of a sudden, you feel behind you. You feel that net touch your backside. And it startles the fish. And he swims out real quick into what he thinks is freedom. A little bit later, he feels the net touch him again. Swims out a little further into what he thinks is freedom. A little bit later, he feels the net again. Swims out a little further until eventually he is enclosed in this thing. And it's too late. And as I've thought about this, I've thought about some of you that have told me this. That you felt like you're not in Christ. And you felt that conviction, oh, I'm not in Christ. I think if I die today, I'm going to go to hell. Listen to me. Do not feel that nudge and ignore it. Don't swim out into freedom and, and find some kind of false comfort. You must turn to Christ. If you keep ignoring it, it's going to be too late.
Now this parable about the judgment of the wicked, what does it do to you? I hope, I hope it makes you want to make sure your soul is right with God and ready for that last day. And for you who are in Christ, so many of you here that are, that are my brothers and sisters that are in Christ, I hope it stirs up your heart to want to preach the glorious gospel and see souls saved from hell and ready for this judgment. Which brings us to the last parable. The parable of the homeowner. It's in verse 51 and 52. Let's read that again. Look at verse 51. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like, here it is, call it a parable, call it a simile, whatever. Is like, here it is, is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Okay? So notice the parable comes. I want us to just understand the plain sense of these, these verses here, okay? These two verses. The parable comes at the very end. You saw it, right? It says, it says, is like, is like a what? Like a master of a house. Try to picture in your head a master of a house or a homeowner who has treasures in his home. And he's got old treasures and he's got new treasures. And imagine you're taking a tour of this man's home. He's showing you around the farm and he's pulling out treasures. Look at these old, this is valuable. Look at these new, this is valuable. He's got new and old valuables or treasure. And that's the picture. That's the picture that should be in your head in this illustration. Now, a question, who is like this? Who's like a homeowner? Who's like a master of a house that's bringing out of his treasures new and old? Who's like that? And the phrase is right here. Every scribe, you see it? Who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. So who's like a master of a house? Who's like, I'll tell you who's like that. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Let's try to break down that phrase because I really want you to understand it. Some glorious truth to be found here if you can understand it. First thing to get right is that word trained right there might be better interpreted made a disciple. Same word over in Matthew 28, 19. Same word over in Acts 14, 21. He preached the gospels and made many disciples. Trained there should be made a disciple. In fact, the, the NAS says it that way. The NAS says, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. Become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. So think about this. Jesus has been teaching in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven. Now he's teaching about what a disciple in the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what a disciple in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Now, big question here. I wondered this for a long time. Does that say scribe? Well, how did the scribes get in on this? Right? He, do you under, yeah, he looks at his disciples. Do you understand these things? Yes, we understand these things. Therefore, every scribe. Why are we talking about, you know, you think of the scribes being the scribes and the Pharisees, these enemies of Christ. Why, why are we talking about the scribes now? Did Jesus all of a sudden just randomly start saying, hey, let me tell you what happens if one of them scribes gets saved. 
one of them Jewish scribes? And the answer is no, he doesn't randomly do that. But what Jesus is doing here is he's referring to his disciples as scribes. As scribes. All disciples of Jesus have a scribal function. All disciples of Jesus have a scribal function. Now, just to prove that, I mean, just look at the therefore connection. You see the therefore connection? Like, like um, catch the full thought here. Do you disciples understand all these things? Yes. We understand. Therefore, every scribe. He's referring to them as scribes that have been made a disciple for the kingdom of heaven. And you're like a homeowner bringing out treasures new and old. Okay, so every disciple has a scribal function. Now, I wonder if that surprised them. You know, people thought of the scribes as being, yeah, these, these are the teachers of the law, man. These are, these, are the, these are the law experts, the word of God experts. They were really highly, and then he just looked at this, you know, fisherman, tax collector, et cetera, and said, and said every scribe, as if he's raising up his own scribal unit that's different from these Jewish scribes. Okay, so what do we mean when we say this? When Jesus calls them scribes, and, and when I'm saying every disciple of Jesus is, is a scribe or has a scribal function, what do we mean by that? Well, a scribe, listen, was a student of the law and a teacher of the law. A scribe was a student of the law and a teacher of the law. Every disciple is a student of the law and a teacher of the law. Now, one of the things you can do to get this from the Bible is go, go study the most famous scribe in the Bible. Anybody know who the most famous scribe in the Bible is? It's Ezra. If you go read Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, really important verse, you should memorize it. Ezra 7, 10. It says, Ezra, he was a scribe, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's what a scribe is like. He sets his heart to study the law of the Lord and obey it, do it, and teach the law of the Lord. This is what a scribe is. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you understand these things? Yes, we do. Therefore, every scribe that's a disciple in the kingdom of heaven will be like this, okay? Now, just like Jesus asked his disciples, I want to ask a similar question. We're, we're walking through these parables. We're in the word of God together, not only in Matthew 13, but throughout Matthew. Listen, do you understand these things? Let me ask you that. Everybody here, do, do you understand these things? And I don't mean that intellectually, like just do you intellectually get it, you know, this equals this, you know, I don't mean that. I mean, do you get it? Like, like, you remember in Matthew 13? Hear me out. Remember in Matthew 13 when he says, to you, you see, to the crowds, they don't get it. They can put some intellectual pieces together, but they don't get it. But to you, my disciples have been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You've been given eyes to see. You've been given ears to hear. Have you? And I know so many of you here can say yes to that. Have you? Do you understand the, like Jesus said, do you understand these things? Have your eyes been open? Do you get it? 
Do you feel the weight of it, the glory of the truth of God's word? Do you understand these things? And if you tell me no, I plead with you. I plead with you. Get right with God before that net gets taken up on shore. But if you say yes, and I know so many of you do, you say, yeah, God saved my soul. He's opened my eyes. And I understand these things. Now, for you, I want to give you the therefore. I want to exhort you. Therefore, if that's you, every scribe, every scribe who's a disciple in the kingdom, I want to exhort you with this. Now, how did you come to understand? How did you come to understand these? You say you understand these things. How did you come to understand? Because God opened your eyes. Because you're in the new covenant. It says, uh, uh, Hebrews 8 says in the new covenant, they all, sh- all of them shall know me, says the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. They'll know me. You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. This is the reason you understand, the reason you get these things. Now, I want to exhort you. What are you going to do with that? You're going to sit on that? Are you going to do something with it? You, you get to understand the truth of God's words. Your eyes have been opened. What are you going to, that's my exhortation. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond to it? This verse, Matthew 13, describes Christians as new covenant scribes. New covenant scribes. Ezra was that old covenant scribe right and we should be like Ezra we we should um, we should set our heart to study the law of the Lord to do it and to teach it like Ezra but even better than him even better than him why because because in in this new covenant disciples of the kingdom of heaven you're like something else you're like a householder or a house owner bringing out treasures new and old Ezra had those old glorious truths, but, but, in this, but in this new covenant, these new covenant scribes, you've got old glorious truths right alongside these glorious truths that Christ has revealed. You see, Ezra didn't get to see the one that fulfilled all those things he taught. He didn't get to experience that beautiful clarity that Christ Jesus brought into everything. He didn't get to experience that, but you do. He's an old covenant scribe. You're a new covenant scribe, like a master of a house, bringing out things new and old. Ezra 7.10, the verse about Ezra studying, doing, and teaching, it, it tells us that Judaism in its purest form was a learning religion and a doing religion, right? Study, do. And a teaching religion. Christianity also has those aspects, but it's but it's better than that. We got treasures new and old. So I want to close our time with this thought, okay? This thought, I, I want to exhort every believer in the room. And what I mean is every New Testament, excuse me, New Covenant scribe in this room, I want to exhort you to be a faithful. New Covenant scribe. Take up your scribal ministry. And we can do that from Ezra 7.10. In fact, since I keep saying it, how about we just flip to it? Ezra chapter 7. I take a lot of value in you actually getting your eyes on these texts. 
Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. Because of Matthew 13, 51 and 52, I want to exhort you to be a faithful new covenant scribe. And I want to use this as an outline. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had, number one, set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Number two, and to do it. Number three, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Let's walk through it that way. Please be exhorted to be a faithful new covenant scribe. So number one, brothers and sisters, you must be students of the word of God. You must be students of the word of God. The Old Testament, uh, old covenant scribe here set his heart to study the law of the Lord. New Testament scribes should set their heart to study the law of the Lord, new and old. With all the glorious clarity that Christ and beauty that Christ has brought into it. The Bible, listen to me, this is a deception. The Bible is not some, it's not territory that only a special class of elite Christians can discover. It's not that. This is not supposed to be, you know, left to the experts. That's a deception in our day. If you're in Christ, you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You've got Christ as your great high priest. You can know God's word. You can study the law of the Lord. But if you don't, if you're not a consistent and faithful student of the word of God, let me just ask, what's hindering you? Let me ask you that. What's stopping you? If you're not studying the word of God consistently and faithfully, what's stopping you? Is it laziness? Proverbs 6, 9 says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Don't let laziness stop you. Is it worldliness? You're so enraptured with the things of this life that the Bible takes a back seat? James 4, 4 says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Don't let worldliness stop you. Is it unbelief? You think, well, I, I, can't be, I can't be a student of God's word. I'm just not smart enough. Who cares how smart you are? Believe the promises. I give you a pro Proverbs 1, 23. It says, if you will turn at my rebuke, if you will turn at my rebuke, I will pour out my spirit on you and make my word known to you. How about that? It's not about how smart you are. Do you have a submissive heart to Christ? Because if you'll turn at his rebuke, if you'll be submissive to him, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I'll make my words known to you. Don't be unbelieving. Believe these truths. Believe these promises from God's word. It says here in Ezra 7.10, Ezra set his heart to do that. Brothers and sisters, set your heart to study faithfully and consistently. Set your heart to be a student of God's word. Don't let your heart boss you around. You tell your heart what to do. Don't follow your heart. That's dumb advice. Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Don't follow your own heart. You tell your heart what to do. Set your heart to study the word of God. 
as a New Testament scribe. Second, you must be a doer. A doer of the word of God. Ezra 7.10, again, he said it's hard to study and to do it, it says. To do it. For New Testament scribes, godly learning always leads to godly living. Godly learning leads to godly living. Beware of hypocrisy. Of, of studying all these things and knowing all these facts, but it not turning into godly living. Beware of that. Beware of having a fat head and a cold heart. Beware of being a hearer. James 1.22, a hearer of the word, but not a doer. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. If you do that, you will deceive yourself. You think you're spiritual, you think you're okay, but you're just hearing a lot of stuff. You're just learning a lot, but living nothing. Now, this is a major problem in our culture. There's a huge, you know this, there's a huge disconnect between scholarship and obedience. So many people that get into so much of the, you know, the, the Bible academia, right? They get into that whole realm and they get smarter, but they don't get more obedient. Beware of this. And I praise God. I, I mean, seriously, I can look all over this room and see men and women that don't fall into that trap, that don't fall into that category, that are godly men and godly women who love God's word and are growing in sound doctrine all the time, growing in knowledge. I praise God for that. And I just want to encourage you to increase more and more. And if that's you, you got a head full of knowledge, but you lack obedience to the Lord, you got a cold heart. I want to warn you about that. That's serious. You're deceiving yourself. Last one, number three. You must be a teacher of the word of God. Ezra 7.10. He said it's hard to study and to do. And then the last thing it says, and to teach his statutes and rules. Every New Testament scribe, and by that I mean a Christian, a disciple of Christ, is called to teach. Now, I don't mean to teach in the same sense. Like everybody's teaching. I don't mean that, right? Because 1 Corinthians 12 says that there are gifts of teaching, and not everybody has the same gift. There are other gifts too. And it's glorious the way the Lord distributes these things out. We should, we should honor God's word in that. Uh, James 3.1 says, Let not many of you be teachers. You'll come under a stricter judgment. So when I say all new covenant scribes are meant to teach, I don't mean in the same sense. I don't mean that everyone's supposed to be a pastor. Or you're supposed to be teaching like this on a Sunday or teaching in a Bible study. Somewhere. I don't mean that. But listen, there's a sense in which every Christian, every New Testament, New Covenant scribe is supposed to teach. So I want to put that before you. You are expected as a follower of Jesus to take up, and you need to grow in your ability to do this, to take up God's word and go to work. To take up God's word and go to work. And here's what I mean. You need to teach the gospel. Matthew 4.19 says, follow me. 
Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You cannot fish for men if you cannot teach the gospel. All of us need to be teachers of the gospel, a new covenant scribe. Also, you need to be able to strengthen the souls of believers. That's a a little phrase over in Acts 14, verse 21 through 23. He says he strengthened the souls of the saints. You need to be able to strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can't do that if you're not using God's word. Think about that. What has God taught you? This isn't, don't overthink this. What has God taught you? What has God helped you with? Don't you know you can turn and help your brother and sister in that way? Romans 15 says you were able to instruct one another. Counsel one another. Teach one another. Every Christian. Study the law of the Lord, do it, and teach it. You got to be able to teach your children. You that have children. Deuteronomy 6.6. These words I command today should be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Talk about these words when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. means all the time. You need to be able to defend the faith. Jude, Jude 3. Jude verse 3 says, Contend, fight earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. You need to fight for sound doctrine. You need to disperse knowledge. I love this verse. Listen to it. Less familiar. Proverbs 15 verse 7. Listen to this verse. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. Don't you love that? The lips of the wise, what do they do? Man, spread knowledge. Just spreading it. That's part of your scribal function is you need to be one that's spreading the knowledge of God, spreading the knowledge of the gospel, spreading the knowledge of God's word. Now, Matthew 13, 52 says that you're like this. You're like a homeowner. A master of a house that's bringing out treasures new and old. That phrase bringing out right there, it's like, it's like flinging it out. It, it's, uh, it's the same Greek word that when, when it says Jesus cast out demons, that's what you're like. You're like, a, uh, you're like a scribe, a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And you're just in your home with these new and old treasures. And you're just flinging them out. You're casting them out. Spreading knowledge into this world. part of your scribal function study the word of god get it in you get the word in you and then cast it out into this world now how beautiful i just want to close with this i want to end with this how beautiful is it when a church gets this when a church really grasps this idea okay it's not some, you know, special elite group, group of Christians or, you know, yeah, pastors, they know this stuff. No, no. Every disciple, you're saying you got the spirit of God in you. You can know God and love his word and spread his knowledge everywhere. What happens when a church gets that? It's beautiful. First Timothy 3.15 calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. What does the church do? It's the pillar and ground of the truth. We hold the truth high. And we hold it firm. 
We, we, we defend the faith that calls the truth to be immovable and we hold it high for everyone to see. It's the pillar and the ground of the truth. And how beautiful, how beautiful when every member of the local church is growing in their ability to love and defend God's word and to hold it high and make it known to the world. That's a beautiful thing. Acts chapter 8, verse 4, uh, the, the church of Jerusalem, you go read that verse. The church of Jerusalem was a really good example of this. You remember what happened there? Church of Jerusalem's doing fine. They got, the, they got their leadership there, and they got the church there, and all of a sudden pers persecution comes raining down on this church, and people get spread everywhere. Now the leaders stay in Jerusalem, but you know what happened to all the members? It said they went everywhere preaching the word. The leaders are still in Jerusalem, but the disciples, members of that church, they went everywhere. You can go read Acts 8-4. They went everywhere preaching the word. I was so encouraged you know, a couple a week or two ago um, from reading in Acts 5. Acts 5 is where Peter and John get arrested for the second time. And his enemies, the government looks at them and says, we told you not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. And yet, you have filled this city with your doctrine. What do you think they were thinking when he said that? You, he just said, we filled the whole city with the doctrine. <laughs> yes, sir. That was the aim. So encouraged by that. Then they're getting beat down for their faith. And Acts, Acts 5.42 says, they did not cease. Preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Brothers and sisters, don't cease. Be ceaseless proclaimers in your conversations, in your families, in your workspace. Whatever you're doing, get the word of God out. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge. This is a part of your scribal function. And you got it better than that old covenant scribe. Because you've got treasures new and old. As you preach Christ. Now, so many of you guys, so many of you guys have caught this vision. I know that. And I see it in you. You, you, you love God's word. You study it. You, you obey. None of us are perfect. But we're, you're trying to obey God's word with all your heart. And you're trying to get it out. And there's all these you know, sweet little stories, you know, here and there of the way God's allowing you to get the word out. And probably hundreds of things I don't even know about. So, so God is helping us in this. My, my urgency is just this. Don't let it dry up. Don't let it go cold. That's something we see in the churches in Revelation, right? It, they get rebuked because they, they left. They abandoned the love they had at first. Man, don't let that be, don't let that be so. But instead, I see it. God's at work in this church. Praise God for that. Listen, to use a phrase from 1 Thessalonians 4, let it increase more and more. Deeper in God's word. More obedience and Christ-likeness and holiness. And man, get the word out. I hope you'd be refreshed to go back even today sometime. And pray and say, God, how can I be more consistent, more faithful in getting your word into my heart and getting it out to a dark world? Let's pray. Father, thank you again 
for the sweet privilege to get to open your word and to read it and to exhort with it, Lord. And I just pray, God, that you would help us all to receive this exhortation. God, make us faithful. New covenant scribes, Lord. Disciples in the kingdom of heaven, Lord. I pray you'd make us like that homeowner, just flinging out treasures new and old. And God, I pray that you would do what we read, what I read in Acts 5, Lord. That you would fill up this city with the doctrine of Christ. And God, I pray you'd let it spread even past this city. God, help us. Help us to be ceaseless in preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Make us bold. And let the power of your spirit come. In Jesus' name, amen.